that you are here this morning. Uh, if you have your Bible with you, I want to invite you to go ahead and take it out, open it up, head over to the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 today. Uh, we're starting a new series today called A Hunger for God, and uh, I'll be telling you more about that here in just a, a few minutes, but I'm excited about where we're going to begin today. Um, if you are our guest, welcome. I'm glad that you're here. Uh, my name is Steve. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we're delighted that you're here with us. Want to make sure that you will let us know that you're here. Uh, let me tell you about our church in a very simple statement. We believe that our church is here to make Houston look more like heaven by helping Houstonians become more like Jesus. So if you want to go on that journey to become more like Jesus, then we want to encourage you to join us in that. Um, the best way to let us know that you're interested is to fill out one of these cards and at the end of the service to just take this card and drop it into the offering basket as it passes by in front of you. Now, there's also some QR codes that are on the back of some of the chairs. You can scan that with your phone. It'll take you to a digital version of that card. Either way is fine. Um, and if you're joining us online, then there is a link that's going to come in the chat right now, and you can just click on that, and it'll take you to a digital version of the card as well. So hope that you'll just let us know that you're here so that we can help you take your next step towards the Lord. Um, as you're headed to 1 Corinthians, a few other things I want to make you aware of. Um, first of all, uh, ladies, our women's conference is coming up in two weeks, and our speaker teacher for that is a woman named Felicia Masonheimer. And she's kind of a thing out there on the socials, if you don't know about her. Um, I think she's got like 150,000 followers on Instagram, that kind of a deal. Um, she is an incredible writer, speaker, teacher, theologian. I'm very excited that our women are going to have the opportunity to hear from her. Um, the conference is in two weeks. You should sign up today. So hnw.org slash women. And then men, we did not forget about you. Today, our uh, spring semester men's Bible study kicks off. I love our men's ministry, the way it's, it's very uh, hands-on, mentoring, um, life on life that happens. And if you are a, a man and you would like to have a place where you can be trained to follow Jesus, to be a follower of Jesus by other men, that I would encourage you to join that study. It begins today at 5 p.m. And you can get all the information at hnw.org slash men. So head on over there and, uh, and check those two things out. All right, as you're headed over to 1 Corinthians 15, I'm just going to give a brief introduction to the Bible for those of us in the room who may not read the Bible regularly or may be new to the Bible. So the Bible is divided into two sections. The first section is called the Old Testament. Now, the Old Testament gives us a record of God and his chosen people, Israel, and they're waiting on a rescuer, a redeemer. They use the word Messiah. And they were often under the rule of invading nations or countries, um, for instance, the Romans. And so they were looking for someone to come and to rescue them and to, to set them free. So when we get to the second part of the Bible, the New Testament, we find out who the Messiah is, the rescuer, the redeemer. His name is Jesus, but he's not a political ruler. He's not a military ruler. Instead, he is God in flesh. And so this God in flesh comes into uh, this uh, to be with God's chosen people to show them that true freedom is not found through political freedom or through military might, but that true freedom is found that God wants to bring you into a new reality called the kingdom of God. And so it's living your life as if God is your king. And the way that you do that is you place your faith in Jesus. So this Jesus, born of a virgin, lives a sinless human life. 
He's executed by the Roman government and, uh, and placed on a cross, but that wasn't just a public execution. It actually ended up being a way that the penalty for sin, which is death, was paid through his, through his execution. Three days later, though, Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, once that happened, his believers who had been afraid and confused were fired up. They said, we finally found the Messiah because only the Messiah would be one who could actually conquer death. And so they went and they told everyone this, and we are preaching that same message here today. We call that message the gospel. And this is the gospel. God has done everything necessary for you to have a relationship with him in Jesus Christ. And Jesus has done all of this to set you free. He has come, become human. He has died a sacrificial death for our sin on the cross. He's conquered death through the empty tomb, and he has filled us with his spirit. So today we preach that same message. One of the first followers of Jesus was a man by the name of Paul. He had a radical conversion. He used to murder Christians. Then he became one. And this Paul wrote a letter to a church in the city of Corinth. And the first letter he wrote them, we call 1 Corinthians. And so this is a section that we're going to read from today, and I'm excited to read from it. So I'm going to pray over us, and then we're going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 10, and see what the Lord would have for us today. So let's just pray. And could we just ask God to move among us today and ask God to speak to us? So let, let's just go before the Lord. Father, we want to hear from you today. God, we want to encounter you. And Father, my prayer is that as I preach, your Holy Spirit would inhabit my words through your word in such a way that you would pierce the hearts and the minds of the people in the room. And Lord, that this wouldn't be about me being an entertainer or being cute, but Lord, that this would be about us meeting with you and trying to figure out how to respond today. And God, my prayer is that you show us how to respond and that, Lord, we would be so overcome with who you are, with your grace, that we would just throw ourselves at your mercy. Father, move among us today, and, and God, we pray, begin the seeds of spiritual awakening and revival in our church today. God, we pray that and we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I passed on to you, as most important, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. This is the word of the Lord. So as my family will tell you, I love Ferris wheels. Like you guys, I, I geek out over them. Now, I wasn't always like this. Um, I wasn't always a Ferris wheel lover. I became a Ferris wheel lover. I mean, I was probably like you, right? I'd be driving down the road. There's like a carnival and you see a Ferris wheel over there. You're like, yeah, cool, Ferris wheel, you know, just kind of go on by. 
And I know that you're doing the same thing, but I'm ready to rescue you today from your Ferris wheel slumber because Ferris wheels are incredible, y'all. Let me tell you why. If you don't already know this, the Ferris wheel was a direct response to a foreign power. Did you know that? That's right. The Ferris wheel was actually unveiled at the 1892 World's Fair. In 1892, one-third, it's estimated, one-third of the American population attended the World's Fair. It was a big deal. The World's Fair right before that was in Paris. And in Paris, they wanted to kind of unveil something that would make the world know who they were, and so they unveiled the Eiffel Tower kind of a thing. And so now Chicago is hosting the 1892 World's Fair, and they want to say, hey, we've got some cool stuff too. And so they have a competition. And a man by the last name of Ferris says, I have an idea. And he brings plans to build the first ever Ferris wheel. Now, I want to be clear. This Ferris wheel was not like the Ferris wheels that you and I have seen. Listen to this. Ferris's enormous vertical structure, which rotated around a center axle, featured 36 gondolas capable of holding up to 60 people each. For a total capacity of 2,160. So this, this thing was 264 feet high. It was the highest that most people had ever been in their lifetime at that moment. The records from this are incredible. People are fainting as they're getting up high in the Ferris wheel. This is true. Um, weddings are performed on the Ferris wheel. Like it's kind of like the original destination wedding. Babe, I've got a great idea, right? You know, it's that kind of a thing. Now, once I discovered how incredibly cool Ferris wheels were, I kind of got obsessed with them. And so, like, any time that we're somewhere and we see a Ferris wheel, like if we're at a location and they have a Ferris wheel, my kids are like, you're going to make us ride that thing, aren't you? And I'm like, yes, I am. Here we go. Let's go ride it. And if you think I'm joking, I'm not. My mom turned 70 this past year. Her birthday party, there was an enormous Ferris wheel right there. And my kids are like, let's just go, come on, let's just go ride the Ferris wheel, because they know how much I appreciate this. Because once you understand it, you're like, wow, this was incredible. It was this amazing venture to respond to uh, the creativity of the Eiffel Tower. We've all kind of had experiences like this, right? You know, you, you buy a car, you never, you're like, nobody has a car like this. You buy it, and then like a week later, you're like, this car is everywhere, right? You sort of just wake up to certain things. The reason that I'm sharing this with you today is that I think that today we need to wake up to the gospel. Um, we've been praying for some time for spiritual awakening and for revival to break out here at Houston Northwest. And what I've recognized is that for many of us, we are in a sort of spiritual stupor where we have been coming to church, many of us have been coming to church week after week, perhaps some of us for decades, and honestly, we think it's just kind of boring. And the reason that we think it's kind of boring has nothing to do with the music. I'm happy to say it has nothing to do even with the preaching. It has everything to do with the fact that we have lost the wonder of the gospel message. And we today, I would say, need to experience what Jared Wilson calls a moment of gospel wakefulness where someone would just grab us by the shoulders and shake us and say, this is incredible. And it's way cooler than the Ferris wheel, y'all. 
And today what I want to do is I want to say we can't have a season of prayer and fasting. That's what a hunger for God is. It's a series where we are going to cry out to God and say, God, teach us to pray, teach us to fast. I'm going to call the church into a 40-day season of prayer and fasting leading up to Easter. We're going to kick that off on Wednesday, February the 22nd. But before we kick that off, we have to wake up to the glory of the gospel. And until we wake up to the glory of the gospel, we will not be able to understand or truly grapple with even prayer and fasting because prayer and fasting are a response to what God has done through Jesus in the gospel. So what I want us to do today is I want us to dive in and to see the beauty and the power of the gospel. Because spiritual awakening will only come if we start with the great rescue message itself. If I start calling people to pray and to fast and we're not springing from the right place, from the gospel, we're going to get a lot of religious activity, but we're going to not actually connect with God because we've got to start in the right place. So what I want us to see today is that if we will go back to this original message, if we'll just sit for a second and bask in its glory and in its truth, the gospel message, if we allow it, will drop like a bomb on our playground. And it will blow away dead wood and dead weight and reveal a fresh atmosphere where the Spirit of God can move. So today, I want us to recognize that this God, who is intensely personal, who cares for us, who loves us, wants us to revel in the glory of the gospel, to just sit back and to soak it in. And as we do so, it will change our hearts. So today, I want us to wake up. Rise and shine, everybody. Here we go. What are we waking up to, number one? I want us to wake up to our foundation. Wake up to our foundation. Look at verses one and two. I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preach to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved. Did you notice that past, present, and future are all right there? He says, you've received this in the past. Now you are standing on it, the present, and by which you are being saved into the future. Your past, your present, and your future are all hung up on what? The gospel I preached to you. That's what Paul says. Everything past, present, and future hinges on this gospel, this message. So now, whenever we hear the word gospel, what is that? It is a proclamation. It is news that is delivered. It is something to be announced. This news is so good, I delivered it, you stand on it, and now it will save you into the future. And this message is the heart of the church. Like if we do not understand how incredible this message is, we will begin to have something other than a church. Can I get an amen? All right, we're, gonna, we're getting there. It's all right. Participatory experience this morning. Feel free. All right, here we go. You see, the problem is, is that some of us have been converted into the wrong thing because we heard the wrong message. Some of us were converted into church attendance. Right? You know, you heard that, you know, the, the people who, you know, kind of older than me will sometimes say, oh, I had a drug problem when I was a kid. My mama drugged me to church every time the church, were, church doors were open. You know, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, I was one of those kids, right? You know, you may not even know what RAs are, but I do, right? Because I was there, right? I know Salty the songbook. You may not, but I do, 
because I was there, right? These things, you're like, what is that? Don't even ask. It's just church stuff that's back there that made me a church rat. I mean, that is who I am. But what I'm telling you is, is that many of us have grown up in a system or a belief where it's like, as long as we go to church or we observe the sacraments or we're there, then God will save us. Listen to me, going to church does not save you. And you're not converted by church attendance. Others of us, right, it's something else. We were converted into the culture war. I just vote the right way. If I get fired up about the right issues, if I put those things on my social media and push everybody that direction, if I can do that, then God's going to be happy. Now, listen, you might get a lot of people together if you get fired up over that. It just won't be a church, right? I think some of us, we think that we're actually saved by Bible study. I mean, Bible study is good. I like studying the Bible. But if we think that the more that we know, the more saved that we are, then we're going to fall into a really big problem. In the same letter, Paul says it, knowledge puffs up. A lot of us think that we know a lot and we know so much that we actually forget that we have been rescued, but it's not Bible study that saves us. Others of us think, well, it's our heritage. You know, my granddaddy was a pastor or my uncle was a deacon or my family's been in this church for five generations. That's fantastic. None of that brings you into, none of that brings you into God's good grace. We're not saved by our heritage. We're not saved by our emotions or what we feel or how it makes us feel in those moments. I share all this with you today because I think that many of us spiritually Even if we were saved by the gospel initially, over the years, a different message captivated our hearts. And so, we're a lot like the Leaning Tower of Pisa that on the day that it was constructed looked fantastic, but year after year began to lean a little more and a little more and a little more to where we can see that there was a time when we were supposed to be magnificent, but now we're actually struggling spiritually. Because it's not just about what we're standing on, the gospel, it's also about this thing of where we stand. Like, we're standing on the gospel, but the gospel has to put us in the right perspective. I I don't know if you've ever been down to St. Thomas University, down in the center of the city. There's a chapel there called St. Basil's. And St. Basil's has uh, the Stations of the Cross that are portrayed there in the chapel, but instead of them being done in the traditional fashion, they are actually carved into relief into the side of the chapel. Now, there they are. They look pretty cool there, and and they really are, but here's the really neat thing about those. If you stand in just the right place in front of those, the way that the artist did those, they actually appear to jump out of the wall. It's really cool. I highly recommend you go down there and check it out. And what I'm letting you know is that the gospel provides the right place, not only on what to stand, but where to stand. You're like, well, Steve, what are you driving at? Here it is. A lot of people today who call themselves Christians are hand-wringing, thinking the church is dying in America. That is not the case. You know what's dying in America? Churches that were built on something other than the gospel. I mean, that's the truth, right? Because what we have is we have a lot of churches that were built on something other than the message that Jesus has done everything necessary for us to come into salvation. And so a lot of people are like, oh, well, America is just going to become like Western Europe. I don't think that's actually the case. Ed Stetzer, who's probably the most well-known statistician in the evangelical church world, 
I think I agree with him what he says. He says that we're probably headed for an America that looks a lot like the Pacific Northwest. Well, how does the Pacific Northwest look? Culturally, the Pacific Northwest is post-Christian. It's moved away from a society that's based on Christianity. At the same time, churches are multiplying and flourishing there as people are living a life based on the gospel and the scriptures. And so what I'm letting you know is our country may become much more godless and secular, but the church doesn't have to die. Now, churches will die if they're not based on and proclaiming and reveling in the gospel. I'm actually bullish on the church because I think that Jesus told us the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But a church is only a church if it is built on the gospel message and not on something else. I think we have a lot of folks claiming to be Christians, claiming to be in churches, and their groups are grounded in a totally different message. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, Paul says it. I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. As we have said before, I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, a curse be on him. Church attendance, quote unquote, in the U.S. may decline. But I don't believe that if we are preaching and living by the gospel that those churches will decline. I think that those churches will continue to grow. You're like, well, Steve, why can you be so confident? Where's the fastest growing church in the world right now? The answer, Iran. Second fastest growing church in the world, China. You think that those are the sorts of governments that are blessing the church? We need to stop thinking that the Holy Spirit can't move unless whoever's in the White House blesses us. And we need to start saying, let's live by the power of the Spirit and not wait on Congress or the government or whoever to say that the church can work. The church works because of the power of Jesus, not the government, right? Now, if we will begin to lean into that, then we'll be standing on the right thing in the right place, and then maybe spiritual awakening can come. But too many of us are waiting on somebody else to give us permission when Jesus already did it. The second thing, wake up to our foundation, then wake up to our salvation. Now, let's look at verse 2. By which you are being saved. By which you are being saved. A couple of things I just want to notice right there in this first little phrase. First of all, we needed to be saved. Like, we had to be rescued. We had to be saved. And you say, well, saved from what? Well, the Bible says we had to be saved from two things, sin and death. According to the Bible, apart from Christ, in this life, we are doomed to be stuck in our sins unless we are rescued by Christ and filled with the Holy Spirit. And after this life, we are doomed to a death that is apart from Christ if we are not in Christ. In this life, saved from sin. In the next life, saved to eternal life with Jesus. You cannot get there on your own. You need someone to rescue you. You can't do it. I mean, you are in your car, on the train tracks, door is stuck, can't open it, about to be hit by a train. You need somebody to rescue you. 
20th floor of a high-rise building, fire everywhere, elevator's not working, fire's between you and the staircase. You need someone to break the window, throw up a ladder, and rescue you. You cannot perform CPR on your lifeless body on the floor. You need someone to rescue you, right? You need someone to rescue you. And the answer is you were rescued in and by Jesus, He is the rescuer, and the gospel message is the proclamation that God has done everything to rescue you. You need to be saved. So we have to be saved. And some of us are like, well, I mean, could I? No, you can't. You have to be saved. There is nothing you can do other than be rescued. And you are only rescued by Jesus. Church attendance doesn't rescue you. Family heritage doesn't rescue you. Culture war won't rescue you. You know, a Bible study won't rescue you. Emotivism won't rescue you. The only thing that can rescue you is Jesus. He's the only one strong enough. He's the only one with the power that can do it. Only Jesus can rescue. So this message, this proclamation, this gospel, this good news, this is the message that we have to have for salvation. This is the thing that we need. So you're probably like, well, what is that message? I'm glad you asked. So let's go to verse three. Paul says, I passed on to you as most important what I also received. So Paul's like, this is what they told me. And I'm just telling you what they told me, that Christ died for our sins. That is the first part of the gospel. Christ died for our sins. Jesus has done everything necessary to save you from the first thing that I mentioned, to save you from your sin. You need to be saved from your sin. You can't be saved from it. Jesus saved you from it. Listen, to this. I love this verse, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sin in his body. Okay, so the Jewish people were waiting on a Messiah, on a rescuer, and what they anticipated was that God would come and somehow conquer the Roman army and then set up a nation state where they would never be defeated. And God completely flips that script on its head and says, no, 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 I am gonna give you a new kingdom, but it's not gonna be the modern nation state, it is going to be the kingdom of God. And the way to come in is by placing your faith in my son, Jesus, this one who has become human. Guys, listen, Jesus became human. God took on flesh. God became human. Why? Because he wanted to redeem us in the same way that we had been corrupted. Like, I mean, it sounds like it's straight out of a movie script. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 21 and 22. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. God says, okay, the world was infected through the rebellion and the sin of humanity, so I'm now going to become human and somehow reverse the curse. We don't really completely understand the metaphysics behind it, but it's still very clearly what the scripture teaches, that somehow Jesus was able to bring all of the sin that any of us have ever committed or ever will commit into his body and in doing so, reverse the curse. So he had to become human. I love that. Um, I've shared this before, uh, but it's just an easy handle for those of us um, who are new. You've never heard me say this. The word incarnation comes straight from the Latin root. Carne, right? Anybody lived in Texas knows what carne is. 
And, and right, a couple of people are like, yes, I know what carne is, right? And that is the word, which is God with meat, God with flesh. God had to become flesh to redeem our corrupted flesh. And he did that metaphysically, changed reality through that by sacrificing himself. So God becomes flesh and says, I want to rescue humanity. And the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to deliver in the same way that they corrupted. And so somehow, in like reverse Dementor fashion, he sucks all of the sin into his body and allows himself to be crucified and have that sin absolutely destroyed. Go back to the picture of the car on the train tracks. Can't get the door open. You need someone to rescue you. This person comes up, hits your car with their truck, knocks your car off the tracks, and then the train runs them over. This is what happened at the cross. And Jesus did that because God said, the only way that they can be rescued is if I intercede. So then what's the next part of the gospel? Not just, not just Christ died for our sins, then he was buried, right? Verse four, he was buried. Like, is that a weird thing to you? Because I think a lot of us are like, well, you know, okay, I get it. Jesus died. There's like a reverse of the curse, the switcheroo. Okay, I kind of get that. But why does Paul say that part of the gospel is that Jesus is buried? This is the answer. He experienced the death we were supposed to experience. It's not just the violence of the execution. And over the years, kind of evangelicals have been kind of fascinated with that. You know, we'll have the services where we'll go through like every single thing that happened to Jesus. And that's valuable. I'm not discrediting that. But then it's like we get done with that and then Jesus dies. We're like, okay, well, then he died. And then we just kind of skip to day three. It's like, you know, we go, oh, it's like he just went to another room somewhere. But that's not the case. He didn't just go hang out in another room for three days. He died. Um, you know, kind of a deep cut reference here, but this is not the princess bride. Right? He's not mostly dead, right? He's all the way dead. Yeah, I, I used it first service. Didn't work either. All right, that's okay. <laughs> the truth of the matter is, is that he's all the way dead. The human body, after three days, the inside begins to liquefy. I know, you didn't want to hear that, but it's still true. And I'm telling you that because I want you to understand that Jesus being buried, whatever happened between the time that he was crucified and the time that he was resurrected, he experienced death not only physically, but spiritually on our behalves. Now, what does that mean? We don't know. We know that he ended up in heaven because he told the thief on the cross that he would be with him in paradise, but between death and that moment, somehow Jesus fully and completely experienced death so that we wouldn't have to. That's the mystery and the beauty of Holy Saturday. And then the next part of the gospel, the next part of the gospel, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Verse 20, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, afterwards at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So listen to me. Whatever death entails was completely wrapped around the body of Jesus to the point that he experienced full death, but then something happened on day three. And what was that? The body that was on the verge of liquefaction began to reconstitute. So I want you to hear the miracle that is proclaimed Jesus gets up out of the grave, and what does that mean? It means, number one, so back to his crucifixion, death is, for, uh, I'm sorry, sins are forgiven. 
then and his death and his burial, that means that he experiences death so that we don't have to. But then the third part of the gospel is, is that he gets up out of the grave so that we get the promise of eternal life. That's what verse 20 and verse 23 is, is that Jesus is the first one out of the grave to show you that we'll get to follow him out of the grave one day. Let me tell you the crazy passage. You should go check it out later, 1 Thessalonians 4. This is what 1 Thessalonians 4 says, that Jesus is going to appear and then get this, I love this phrase, the dead in Christ rise first. I mean, there is going to be a day when the clouds are going to crack, Jesus is going to descend fully embodied, and somehow our souls, which have been with him for an indeterminate amount of time, are going to descend with him. Simultaneous to that, graves will begin to open, ash urns will begin to spill over, and bodies will begin to reconstitute. Dry bones will grow tendons, graves will crack open, and suddenly those glorified brand new bodies will be reunited in the air with our souls. Holy smokes. And then you think, and then they go off to heaven. No, 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 no. Then they pull a U-turn, come back down to earth, new heavens, new earth. Jesus remakes everything, and then we rule and we reign with God into eternity. Somebody say amen after that. Right. Now, I'm telling you that. I'm telling you that because whenever you're like, church is boring, That's because you think church is like, well, I'm learning how to not smoke and not sleep around. (laughs) That ain't church. Church is preparing you to rule with Jesus into eternity. Church is ushering in the kingdom of God in your heart so that you can learn how to live eternity today. If you are asleep, hopefully this is grabbing you by the shoulders and saying, come on, wake up. This is enormous. This is as big as it gets. And so this is why Paul says, now listen, I know you think I'm crazy, but he appeared to Cephas, and then he appeared to the 12, and then 500 brothers and sisters, and then he appeared to James, and then to the apostles, and then me. What's he trying to say? I didn't make this up. This has been passed on from Jesus to the followers from the very beginning. So you're like, Okay, that's cool. I've heard that before. Why are you saying that we have to come back to this over and over and over? And this is the answer, because we fall asleep to it. Like we're walking in a spiritual palace being lavished with the grace of God. We've got the spiritual equivalent of a Ferrari in the garage, and we're like, eh, not that big of a deal. We are missing it. We're missing it because we have become accustomed to living the high life. Guys, do you remember the first time that like you got a McDonald's Happy Meal when you were a kid? You're like, man, there is a God. And you're like, oh, wow, incredible. Then, you know, at some point, right, you move on. You have bigger, better things, that kind of a deal. And, you, you know, that just loses its luster. And we've kind of moved up in the world all the way to the top when we've got the spiritual pinnacle. And since there's nowhere else to go, we almost become entitled. And when you become entitled, do you know what happens? You become complacent. And when you become complacent, you know what happens? You begin to experience entropy. You begin to decay spiritually because you're not in a place of gratitude. Listen to me. You are living in the proximity of the kingdom of God. The good news of Jesus is here. You're holding a stick of spiritual dynamite and you're saying, I just wish I had some spiritual power. 
Like he has given you everything. The gospel is stupendous. It's scandalous grace. It is incredible. It ought to blow our minds. And hopefully you're going, man, he's fired up today. Yes, because when you wake up to the gospel, you suddenly begin to realize this is everything. This is everything. We can never get over it. This is not boring. This is beautiful. Did God save you or not? I mean, like, did God save you? Did God literally take you out of the clutches of death and Hades, drug you out of the grave and said, here, come into new life? Because if he didn't do that, fine. But if he did that, you ought to be excited because God rescued you. He changed you. So look, yeah. So Paul goes through all of that and then he gets down to verses nine and 10. So he says, so this is the message. Now look at this in verse 10. We're waking up to our foundation, right? And we're waking up uh, to our salvation. But look at this last thing. We're waking up to our fountainhead. What, what do I mean by our fountainhead? The gospel, once it comes into us, ought to change us to the point that now we do something with it. Look at verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. I love this phrase. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Like, what does he mean by that? Okay, look, y'all already know this. Nerd, comic book geek, all that. You know the Batman origin story, right? Bruce Wayne, as a kid, sees his parents murdered in front of him, and as a result, becomes a crime fighter. The gospel has that kind of an effect on us. Not that we put on a bat suit but that we have had an encounter with the living God and as a result, we are changed. Listen to me. If you have not changed, you have not encountered God. Like, I don't even know how else to put it. Like if you're like, yeah, I got saved and I was exactly the same from one day to the next, you didn't experience God. Because if you encounter God, he changes you. He pulls us out of the pit. When the church of Jesus Christ, when Houston Northwest awakens to the grace of God, what happens? Well, look at Paul's word. He worked harder. Why did he work harder? Because he was trying to earn his way into God's good graces? No, but because Paul knew he had been killing Christians. He was rescued and now he gets to live in eternity with Christ. He can't get over it. He wants everyone to experience this. Do you remember the story where the woman began to weep and to wash Jesus' feet with her tears? And they're like, you know, what's going on with this? And Jesus explains, for the ones who have been forgiven much, their gratitude is even greater. Like, if you have been forgiven much, you ought to be grateful to the point that you can't help but do more. I want to love more. I want to serve more because I want everybody to have this. Ephesians 5, verses 14 through 21. Get up, sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Pay careful attention then to how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. What Paul says is when you wake up to the gospel, it's like you start doing everything different. He says, wake up, O sleeper. What's the next thing that's happening? They're speaking to each other in songs. They're singing. Like, guys, we don't, 
I don't, I don't know if you notice this, we don't go to a lot of places and just start singing with other people that we don't know, right? Hey, how are you doing? You want to just sing a little bit together? I mean, people will be like, you're a weirdo, get away. But we come in here and we start singing together. Why? We start singing together because God has so changed us that we can't help but sing. Now, some of you are like, well, I don't sing. I know you don't. I see you. <laughs> I'm going to be honest with you. I don't like it. And I'm going to tell you why I don't like it. I don't like it because I'm like, man, if God changed you, then sing. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Steve, I can't sing. If you, if you heard me sing, you would be like, stop singing. Well, first thing I would say is, come stand by me. Um, you probably would then feel a lot better about yourself. But I love the Stanley Hirawas quote. I love this quote. Stanley Hirawas said, if the Lord gave you a good voice, sing out and give him praise. If the Lord gave you a bad voice, sing out and pay him back. <laughs> I love it. Nobody cares if you have a, this is not a concert. This is worship to the Lord. Right? This is why we sing. This is why we pray. We do this because we are responding to what God has already done in our hearts. The story of Rip Van Winkle, written by Washington Irving, the whole story is, is this guy falls asleep, and he sleeps through the American Revolution. And when he wakes up, there's democracy, and he's trying to figure out why, his, uh, why him talking about being a supporter of King George is so unpopular. I think some of us have been sleeping through the Revolution, <laughs> God has been working through the gospel in our hearts. And they're like, man, people are fired up. And some of us are like, well, I, I don't get what the big deal is. If you don't get what the big deal is, you have not encountered God. Let God change your heart to the point that a fountainhead of grace springs up from you. Once the gospel hits, the heart of stone is turned to the heart of flesh. And the gospel just drives down into the heart and hits a gusher of a well. And out comes generosity and love and kindness, service in such a way that we cannot help but love others. This is how we resist sin. The devil cannot fight me when I'm walking in recognition of God's grace. Because when I'm walking in recognition of God's grace, he sees the spirit in me and on me. And all I have to do is call out to the spirit. As Peter says, right, resist him and he will flee. Because the devil cannot put up a fight against the Holy Spirit of God. This is how generosity becomes real. This is how racial divides are conquered. This is how sexual purity becomes a reality in a church when the world is confused. This is how people are saved. This is how conversions come. I get to bludgeon my sin to death with the grace of God because God gives me the power to do so. John Owen, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. This is the thing that I want for our church is that we get captivated by the gospel, by grace. And once we do, then our worship and our prayer becomes alive. No offense, no offense. I don't want us just to come to church. I mean, I love the fact that there's a lot of us in this room. But I want us to gather, and when we gather, the Spirit of God move. And when we get our hearts and our lives in alignment with the gospel, then we create a space in which the Holy Spirit can move and do things. We're going to have a night of prayer and worship on February 22nd. I'm going to teach next week on prayer, and the next week I'm going to teach on fasting. And I'm going to call us into prayer and fasting on February 22nd, and my hope is, is that this room will be completely packed. 
And that on that night, we will say, God, we're coming here in recognition of the gospel that you have saved us and done everything necessary through Jesus, and we want to respond to you. See, in other words, prayer and fasting is not a magic trick to manipulate God. Prayer and fasting is a way in which we align our hearts with the truth of the gospel that's already been poured out on us, and we begin to experience God in a way that is even more full, right? And so I want our church to begin to actually catch fire as we encounter God in that way. Some of y'all know that I'm, I'm friends with um, a lot of Muslims and Jews in the city. And uh, I had lunch with um, an imam and a, and a rabbi a couple weeks ago with another pastor. And, uh, you know, we always start out these lunches. It's like, hey, how are your kids? And, you know, how's everything going? And that kind of stuff. But it typically turns to theological discussion. I mean, come on. Right, that's, that's what's going to happen. So it turns to theological discussion a couple of weeks ago. And um, the topic of atonement comes up. And so my Muslim friend is explaining atonement in their tradition. Well, you know, you have to go give money to the poor. Or you have to do some good deeds if you don't have any money to give. And my Jewish friend is like, yeah, we have these prayers that we pray so that God atones for our sin. And um, so I'm like, well... Um, do you guys have a concept in either of your faiths that is a corollary to the Christian idea of grace? And my imam friend says, well, what do you mean by grace? I was like, well, I'm glad that you asked. Um, so me and this other pastor, we start trying to explain grace, and they're, they're not getting it. They're like, but I mean, like you have to go and like you have to give money so that God will atone for your sins, right? We're like, no, you do not have to do that. Why not? Jesus already did everything. But you have to like offer, you have to say these prayers, right? If you don't say these prayers, then, then Jesus won't keep atoning for your sins, right? I'm like, no, no, like once you've received Jesus by faith, he has atoned for everything from now and forever. And I mean, we go back and forth and they cannot get it. And finally, like it, it hits my imam friend's uh, head and he goes, wait a minute. It feels like if what you're telling me is true, people could just take advantage of that. I was like, oh, now you're getting grace. Right, because you see, there's a lot of us in this room that are asleep because we've been taking advantage of grace for a long, long time. And you know what? You'll still be in heaven. But wouldn't it be better to experience the revelry of joy living by grace now? I mean, can you imagine that you knew that you could live by grace today and you just gave it the stiff arm? Verse 10, I worked harder than any of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Like Paul, the murderer, the persecutor, lived by grace. And some of us are just not impressed with it. Like this is the thing. This is what God has brought and wrought into the world is the grace of God through his son, Jesus. And we're domesticated to it. I want you to know grace and I want you to understand the gospel. And so I want you to reflect on this. I want you to let the scriptures grab you by the shoulders and shake you and wake you up and say, rise and shine. Let's not sleep through the revolution, but let's step into what God has for us. There's basically two ways you could respond to this today. If you're not a believer, like you're going, man, I, I don't think I ever understood this gospel message. This is what I tell you. This is how you receive salvation. 
the thing that I've preached today, the gospel message, you place your faith in Jesus. You believe that he is God in flesh. You believe that he did die for your sin, that he was buried and experienced death, that he was raised on the third day to conquer death, to bring you into eternal life, and he gives you his spirit today to live by. You believe that, you come to faith in it, you confess it, and salvation is yours today. Today can be the day of salvation for your house. Second way you can respond, if you've already believed I would just say, if you've been asleep to the grace of God, wake up. We need you to wake up because if God is going to bring about spiritual awakening and revival in this place, he's gonna need us to wake up. Let's cry out in prayer. Let's meet him in fasting. and Let's do it so that God can move in this place. Wake up, O sleeper. It's time to rise and shine. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you, God, that you, you love us enough to wake us up from our spiritual slumber. And so, Father, my prayer right now is that for anyone who has felt spiritually stuck, that the dynamite of the gospel would explode whatever roadblock is in their life so that they might be able to take a step towards you today. God, that they can bludgeon their sin through the gospel, that they can can step towards you, that they can experience the power that comes through prayer, Lord, that they can do those things because they, wow, they think, man, look what God did. He rescued me. God did not rescue you to leave you in a dry and parched land. God rescued you to drag you into his family. He wants you. Lord, let us see that. And Father, if there's anyone who is here who has yet to say yes to you, then my prayer is that right now, right now, they would say yes to you through faith. Right now where they're at, they would pray. They would say, Lord, I believe. I give my heart and my life to you. I want to follow you for all of my days. Jesus, wake us up. Move in this place. And we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. So glad that you joined us online today at Houston Northwest Church, where our vision is to make Houston more like heaven by helping Houstonians become more like Jesus. If you have questions about following Jesus or would like to talk to someone about next steps in your spiritual journey, text Jesus to 281-946-6500. Connect with us throughout the week by following us on social and enjoy a great day.